always loved train journeys. For me, to be a passenger is to be on a voyage of exploration. There's a delicious anonymity to traveling as one of many. And my train journeys are often taking me to destinations too far to reach by car. There's a nostalgia too when I settle onto a train seat, a feeling of retracing the travels of millions of people before me. Only as I get older do I realize this nostalgic fondness for Britain's creaking, mostly privately owned railways, may not be an image I've conjured up out of nowhere. A century-long PR project has shaped the cosy image of British railways in the minds of the public. They represent seaside holidays, tearful wartime reunions on packed platforms, and connectivity. And even when Britain's railways are placed within the context of the empire they helped maintain, they are framed as one of the only good legacies of imperialism. India, for example, is held up as a grateful beneficiary of Britain's railways, as if the East India Company just decided to altruistically lay down thousands of miles of train track, and definitely not because it wanted to transport India's resources back to Britain for profit. But what of those earlier days of empire, when trains first began snaking their way across the British countryside? When chattel slavery still dominated Britain's economy? How did these two industries that entrench Britain as one of the most powerful nations in the world interact? I'm Moya Lothian MacLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. When does the cosy image of Britain's railways begin? Sort of with the end of steam in the 1960s. This is Dr Ollie Betts, research lead at the National Railway Museum in York. You've got people immediately taking steam engines and putting them on what we now recognise as heritage railways, which are an enormous business. We have a PhD student who's just finished, Sophie Vora, who's done a really great PhD thesis on this. I'm afraid I'm going to crib some of her ideas and hopefully give a reference here. People think of them as a sort of weekend treat, but they're enormous businesses, heritage and they add a huge amount to local economies. And they're great. So, you know, we work with a lot of them at the museum to preserve and keep our railway heritage alive. So that's really fascinating. Once you've not got steam around, which was this horrible, dirty, people were not nostalgic about steam at all at the time, but immediately it vanishes, you know. You've got things like Thomas the Tank Engine and you've got the Heritage Railways and the, the sort of romantic whiff of steam that you get at heritage centres. I mean, this is the difficulty, right? People are so fond of Britain's railways. And I'm aware, saying that as the head of research at a museum that relies on people's fondness for railways to generate its visitors and, to be frank, it support its income. I think it's wonderful that people are passionate about our railways. I think that one of the byproducts, unfortunately, of that cosy image can be a real reluctance to engage with the sharper bits of railway history that we're talking about now. So the railways we're talking about, when do they come into being? If you're thinking about this, it's much closer to the Battle of Waterloo than it is to Queen Victoria. And I think that's the thing listeners need to understand. 
listening to several series of your show, you know, they know about slavery, they know it's rooted in an 18th century experience and system of capitalism and things like that. So too are the railways, even though they're often seen as a sort of Victorian technology, something of the 19th century, right? But they come out of the 18th century. So the important dates that we're thinking about, usually 1825, the Stockton and Darlington Railway, you know, George Stevenson's sort of triumph there is often held up as the first. Liverpool and Manchester are connected very famously by railway in 1830. Listeners may remember the rocket, that sort of yellow and black sort of symbol of progress, you know, one of the first steam engines, again, designed by George and Robert Stevenson. That's one of the sort of triumphant engines at the rocket. And then you're looking at a period of absolutely explosive growth across Britain for the next 30, 40 years. And it's really hard, I think, to try and contextualize just the sheer scale cities are being carved through you slice a railway straight through the middle of newcastle's castle for example buildings are being pulled down huge arches and viaducts are being marched across the countryside to carry trains so this is an enormous growth period well into the 19th century but it starts right at the beginning and as i say it's sort of closer to that 18th century georgian experience that some of your listeners might be familiar with from previous episodes To contextualise, the first railways were being developed a decade before full abolition would become law in Britain and its colonies. And when we speak about these railways, what are they being used for? Are we seeing those passenger steam trains that loom so large in collective nostalgia? The first thing that we need to get away from is this is not about passengers. This is about freight. Early railways on the northeast coast, it's going to be about coal. If you're familiar with that coal to Newcastle expression, you know, you're pulling coal. This is industrialising time as well. So you've got factories everywhere, all powered by coal, all demanding coal. You've got explosive growth of population as well. And like most heating and cooking is powered by coal as well. So you're mining out of the sort of northeast and pulling it down to the coast and you would have taken it by ship. But then the railways take over that trade. If we're talking about other places, so Liverpool and Manchester, we're talking about goods coming in from Liverpool, raw goods, raw material, increasingly from the empire as well, as the empire starts to grow in the 19th century. And then that's funneled into Manchester, you know, this sort of cathedral, the sort of dirty, noisy cathedral of industry that's pumping out goods. And then the railways carry these back to the ports and the towns and they're exported or they're consumed in Britain as well. It would have looked really, really strange. We're so used to railways now, but it would have been very, very smoky. We're talking about coal-fired railways as well, so the railways had an interest in the coal trade. We're talking about huge trains of trucks primarily, and then as time goes on, we're getting into passenger carriages quite early on, but as a sort of passengers for most of the 19th century are sort of awkward extra that you're tacking onto your railway to make a bit more profit. I think we think about intercity railways now as passengers, but we're talking about connections between factories, resource fields, ports, you know, these are very, very functional networks. I'm guessing these railways need big financial backing. Enormous. We're talking about enormous amounts of money, and that's going to be really important when we talk about the links to slavery. It seems a no-brainer that this big new industry would be attracting investment from people who'd made their cash via slavery and now saw those profits threatened by the campaign for abolition. People who have an interest in the slavery system are often big owners of shipping and big sort of heavily invested maritime trade. So it's not a weird thing for them to shift into another mode of transport. It's quite a normal thing, I think, for them to invest in. 
this is quite a new and experimental form of transportation as well. There's a lot of jitters early on about whether it's going to be something that sticks around. Again, we think the railways are a thing that will always be there. But if you're an investor in the 1840s, this seems like a really shaky prospect. So it's going to appeal to people who've already got experience of working with high risk and experience of investing in transport capital. And both of those tend to be the same sort of people who are invested in the slave trade. What I'd like your listeners to sort of appreciate is that we're talking about something that's really, really huge and quite rapacious as well. So these are big businesses and they are able to throw their weight around quite considerably. We're used to a very cosy image of the steam railway, partly because people take their kids on steam holidays now and we used to Thomas the Tank Engine and I've got three small children and, you know, it's a very cosy image of the steam railway, but the big big industries that threw their weight around and knew how to sort of manipulate markets. I want to know how we can trace these financial links that show the relationship between the railways and people who made their cash from slavery-related investments. Is somewhere like the UCL legacies of British slavery a good place to start? I mean, the UCL database is just a fantastic resource, but also it's sort of the bane of my life when we're talking about railways because, you know, you asked right at the start of this, right, what's the key date? And we talked about the 1830s, the 1820s, you know, and the UCL database gives you this snapshot right at the end of slavery. And if you asked some other railway historians who are more sceptical about the links between slavery and railways, they'd say, well, you know, slavery stops then because that's the Abolition and the Compensation Act. And then railways take off. So, you know, there's a gap between the two. But of course, we know that's not how money works. That's not how money works today. And of course, it wasn't how money worked in the 1830s and the 1840s. Railways need enormous amounts of capital, right? You have to buy up land. You have to lobby MPs. You often have to bribe MPs as well. The Victorians were not (laughs) backwards about getting things done in that way. You have to buy land. You have to invest in machinery. Your machinery sometimes explodes. You know, it's very dangerous stuff. So you need lots of capital. And the UCL database is a good example of how suddenly, with these government payoffs, certain groups in society had capital to burn on risky projects. And the primary one of those was the railways. And you can see that from some of the receipts there, particularly things like the Great Western Railway. I mean, who is going to be investing in a railway that comes out of Bristol? It's not going to be exclusively people who have money from the slave trade, but a large part of who has money in Bristol are those people. I've travelled so much using the Great Western Railway. It's the route that directly links my childhood home and my adult life in London. The current Great Western Railway is not the same company as the one founded in 1833, but it uses the name, cultural legacy and the roots of the first one. So how did that first Great Western Railway come into being? What was its purpose? The Great Western Railway gets its Act of Parliament. People may know from HS2, you need an Act of Parliament to set up a railway in 1833. Construction starts in 1835. If people are familiar with Isambard Kingdom Brunel, this is Brunel's big project, one of his many big projects, but his particularly big railway project. And the dream is creating this sort of clear link between Bristol and and London, ultimately. Because if you think about where Bristol and London are, you've got awkward canal links, you've got to either go all the way around the sort of south coast and back up the Thames if you're going by ship. The genesis comes in the 1830s 
but it is going to cost an enormous amount of money, enormous in comparison to some of the other railways that have been mooted up until this point. Liverpool and Manchester, for example, is relatively cheap in comparison to what's planned for the Great Western Railway. You think about how roughly close Liverpool and Manchester are. It's an enormous undertaking. What sort of cost are we looking at? I would say 42 million. I think in comparison to Liverpool and Manchester, it's about 10 million. So we're talking about a much more substantial cost. Let's remember that we are still talking about the 1800s. So as Ollie says, these are enormous numbers. What is the importance of connecting Bristol? Was it because Bristol at the time was such a powerhouse because of its links with the slave trade? And the fact that so many merchants and planters were based in Bristol as a port city? You've hit the nail on the head there. It's an import city, right? So it's got lots of capital that's been created in this merchant class that's emerged from the sort of 17th century onwards, which has these, as you've explored before, these just indelible links to systems of slavery in the Caribbean and Africa. But also it's a port which is starting to feel, I think, in the 19th century, pressure from other ports, which is another reason why you think, well, let's put in a railway to really make sure that we stay people's destination of choice. So to simplify, ships are getting bigger and bigger. You need deeper and deeper harbours. Bristol doesn't have a particularly deep harbour. It sort of then later on develops modern docks, but that costs a lot of money. Clearly, there's an idea that let's get the railway in, you know, and we can stay the premier port. We can stay the one that people want to come to and we can link directly to the capital. So obviously the Liverpool and Manchester railway, for example, has not linked down to London yet. So there's an idea that they want to sort of create these very clear links from Bristol to the capital. Who are the key characters involved in getting the Great Western Railway off the ground? Some of the most important people here are the Gibbs family, who become some of the big executors and investors in the railway. People like Charles Alexander Saunders, who was the secretary, who came out of the planter and merchant family. But also what we're talking about is not just the people who go in to staff it, but the group of investors and lobbyists. And railways involve a lot of pushing and shoving in the 19th century. And there's a lot of rival schemes that you've got to see out of the way. You've got to persuade lots of reluctant rural landowners to give up their land to the railway. So you need a sort of group of people who have quite close bonds, who've got quite close relationships with each other. So in Stockton and Darlington, it's Quakers. That's who is the sort of movers and shakers in the Northeast. So that's an easy group. They all know each other from their Society of Friends meetings. They all know each other. Often the families are intermarried. So it's a really good group of people who can work with one purpose to drive that railway forward. In Bristol, that's going to be people who are part of Bristol's business elite. And that business elite, as you know, is just completely steeped in this trade. The Gibbs family made their money in a trading company that became a behemoth, with branches and subsidiaries stretching from London to Liverpool. They dealt in everything from timber to insurance, and the Gibbs parent company eventually became part of HSBC's insurance broking operations in 1987. George Gibbs was a Bristol-based merchant and part of the extended Gibbs family. He built up a subsidiary shipping company, which was heavily involved in the Atlantic slave trade. His son, George Gibbs Jr., 
turned it into a very successful merchant banking business after his dad's death, under the name Gibbs, Bright and Company. George Gibbs Jr. had active interests in the slave trade. He made eight claims under the Slavery Compensation Act in 1837 and was awarded over £100,000 in today's money. Even after his retirement in 1839 and the abolition of the slave trade, he left £9,000, nearly £550,000 in today's cash, invested in his business to further develop the plantation trade. I'm fascinated by how George Gibbs Jr. is the embodiment of this Venn diagram, showing the overlap between the type of investors who saw the slave trade and the railways as two sides of the same coin of financial opportunity. He comes from a family of Bristol West India merchants and, you know, as part of Gibson Bright, one of the big companies there, has a personal estate worth £90,000. And we were talking about people who are long-term investors and use capital in particular ways. So Gibbs has already invested in docks and canals. He's invested in cotton works. He's invested in the Clifton Bridge. You know, so he's someone who has, I suppose, the business acumen and the business experience to look at the Great Western Railway and think, no, actually, I can deal with the risks here. I don't see this as something that terrifies me as an investor. And that confidence and the money to do that investing comes out of his links to the West Indies trade and the movement of enslaved people and their labour. It's a very clear causal link in that way. I really want to dig into this mindset that is underpinning all of this investment in two industries that seem to involve compartmentalisation of their very real and damaging impact on people who become a human cost of turning a profit. There's sort of two ways to think about it. One way is, and people use, I think, the analogy of rain on pavement. The money that is tainted by slavery is just everywhere in British society at the time. And it just gets into every potential investment, anywhere that requires money, that requires capital, because there's such a pool of this money about that it just gets in like rain getting into the cracks on pavement. If you're talking about the early railways, this is... I'm sort of always hesitant to use the analogy of the Wild West because actually what we know about the Wild West was that it wasn't as violent as we think it was. But there are some great stories that come out of this period. You know, there's a lot of sweet talking and there's a lot of financial dealing and there's a lot of good business practice, but there's also some atrocious business practice as well. What were some of those practices? There are bits where Brunel's navvies, navvies are the sort of the working class guys who are doing all of the construction of the railways with the hard labour and they're just using often nothing more than spades and wheelbarrows essentially, we're not talking about mechanical diggers or dynamite or anything like that there's bits where navvies fight other gangs of navvies from other railways to make sure their railway gets through, there's rumours that Brunel is directly involved in getting his navvies to attack a rival's railway construction during the construction of the Great Western Railway. But there's a lot of dealings. So there's a lot of the idea that you've got to get into Parliament. A lot of parliamentarians are landowners at this point as well, because we're talking about before all of the Reform Acts that sort of give power to the emerging cities in the 19th century. So loads of those little, you know, who represent a handful of land is sort of voters at this point as well. So you're having to persuade lots of MPs to persuade their landlords to give up their land for this weird contraption that's going to run across their fields and scare their horses and run through their woodland and things. When we talk about persuading here, how would that work in practice? Bribes, threats, 
Was it carrot or stick? Some of that is glad handing and some of that is quite rapacious from the railways and from the landlords as well. So the railways are very good at cutting these slightly dodgy deals and creating stations that only the landowner can use. There's lots of examples where landowners can flag down passing trains to just get on board and they can be the only passenger at that stop. And that's the agreement that the railways come to. So think if I was getting your listeners to understand anything, it's that this is really quite a ruthless trade, but also about being connected to people, knowing how to use the legal system, knowing how to get into parliament, knowing how to have people's ear and say, well, you know, actually, this thing could be really good for us all. If you could just sign here on this line here, those are very, very similar to the tactics that are involved in supporting and continuing efforts in the British slave trade at the time as well, especially some of the tactics that are used to block abolition, the sort of parliamentary shoving and poking that happens and lobbying and being connected. I think some people might take exception to this, but it is important to understand that this isn't a sort of gilded age of people acting in a very moral way. You know, there are some very sharp business practices happening in the early railways, and that feeds into a culture that's come out of the 18th century about very, very close-knit dealings. What other ways did slavery impact rail expansion? Was the trade driving the development of the line between Liverpool and Manchester? If you want to talk about Liverpool and Manchester, we have to talk about cotton, okay? It's not the only good flowing into Liverpool's docks by any means, and it's not the only thing that Manchester's industry wants, but it's the main thing. If we talk about cotton coming into Manchester, up until the American Civil War, we are almost exclusively talking about cotton from the American South, and that cotton has been produced by enslaved people almost exclusively. Liverpool merchants maintain houses and warehouses and branches in significant port cities in America, particularly in what becomes the Confederacy during the Civil War. Up until the outbreak of the Civil War, that is where this cotton is coming from, no doubt. And whether Liverpool and Manchester investors are themselves involved in the slave trade is up for debate, I think, and you can have lots of debates about that. Whether they are aware of where this cotton is coming from, there is no doubt about that. People knew that this cotton was being produced by enslaved people, particularly as we get into the 1840s and the 1850s. And also, I think it's really worth flagging up here the resilience of working class communities in the Northwest who put pressure on manufacturers not to yield to this, not to give in, to support the union, to support anti-slavery causes and not to sort of lobby the government on behalf of slave-owning nations like that. What happens during the Civil War is Manchester's manufacturers are looking at desperately for somewhere else to get cotton from. And they settle on Egypt and particularly India, which by this point is starting to be properly brought under British control. By this time, we're seeing the railways begin to be implemented physically in Britain's colonial sites. And with that, is there also the use of slave labour? I read that in Nigeria, enslaved people were used to build the rail routes by British overseers. In the colonies, was this considered slavery as we've been talking about? Or was this type of work classified as indentured labour? This is where we get into the really thorny bit about what is and isn't slavery, or more precisely, I think, what people in the 19th century called slavery and what they chose to not call slavery, indentured labour. This is often one of the systems that's 
you know, Britain abolishes slavery, it abolishes the slave trade, you're not allowed to utilise slave labour legally. And what you are allowed to do is all sorts of indentured labour systems and requesting local labour. For example, what they often do in India is work with local middlemen who say, yes, I can bring 8,000 people to your construction site and build this railway. British engineers and railway managers in India, for example, not always the best at checking the conditions of the recruitment of those labour We can talk about groups like the Ugandan Asians, for example, who have moved from India to Uganda or what's now Uganda in Africa and Kenya and Tanzania to build British railways there. The recruitment processes are very confused, are very difficult. A lot of people are told that they're going to be there for a very short period of time, whereas actually the British have very little in the way of plans to then move the labourers back to India after the terms of service have finished. So it's not quite slavery but also it's something that we would look on now as very very concerning labour conditions and this is replicated all the way through the globe I mean manifest destiny in the United States I don't want to excuse it at all but I think it's worth putting railways are enormously heavy undertakings in terms of human labour and human capital we're not talking about Anything that we'd understand as like a mechanical digger or a JCB or anything, we're not talking about that until probably the very earliest, the 1890s. So most of the railway era is done by men primarily, although women as well, with pickaxes, spades and buckets. And that's who's doing this work. The labour that's happening in the United States is incredibly difficult. Lots of enslaved people in the American South before the Civil War are used to build the South's railways because they're just handed over and this becomes part of the agreement with landowners is that the railway will go through their land, but also the landowner will make their slaves available at the weekend for railway construction. You know, they are another resource and it's very difficult and it's very upsetting to see those labour conditions, I think, as a historian in the 21st century. It's very difficult to see men and women talked about as just a resource that can be deployed. And if you think about it, I mean, the railway that goes to Charleston, which was one of the big southern ports, Charleston connected directly to Liverpool and Bristol. So again, you know, we're back to this global story that comes back to Britain about even if the individuals involved in funding and building Britain's railways weren't themselves directly involved in the slave trade, they were entirely complicit in the sort of global system that was happening. If listeners want to take a journey to understand the rail routes outside of the cosy image we're encouraged to embrace, where should they board? I know we've given the railways a bit of a hard time on this episode. People should take the Great Western Railway out to Bristol. People should understand what that journey meant in the 19th century. And people should think about it. If you can look out of the window and imagine enormous freight trains passing you by day and night, the fueling of Britain that comes out of the railways. You can also take a trip up to Liverpool and Manchester Railway and understand that connection between cities because so much of this is about cities and we've talked about urban elites and urban investors. I suppose this my utterly shameless plug. You can come to the museum. And where can people find you? We're five museums across the group. The Science Museum down in London, the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester, ourselves, National Railway Museum in York, our offshoot locomotion up in County Durham in Shildon in one of the cradles of the railway, and then the museum in Bradford. Britain's railways are now part of the fabric of life here, and in many other countries that once counted as part of the empire. 
But as we've continually discovered in this series, their evolution was not driven by public transport concerns, but rather the cold, hard cash of big business. Like the slave trade which helped push railway expansion, profit was first and foremost. Next episode will take me on another type of journey, one which perhaps still looms largest in our minds today as the starkest and most enduring embodiment of the transatlantic trade. The shipping routes which saw black Africans turned from humans into slaves. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumba. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Ben Yelovitz and the Smiley Sound Collective. Social assets by Forward Slash. This is a Broccoli production. Hi, I'm Ben Yelowitz, the sound designer. I just wanted to say a huge thank you to Tuki for lending us some of their music for this series. Tuki are a music duo formed in Britain, fusing sounds from their heritage in Western Africa, Western Europe and America. I really recommend that you go check them out at tuki, that's T-O-U-K-I, dot bandcamp.com. Tuki.